Would you join me as we continue our worship this morning by turning to the Lord in prayer? Join me, please. Lord, our tongues are lisping and stammering in comparison to what we should say. The worship that is due to your name is greater than what lies within our power to offer. Lord, we know that the best that we can do today is imperfect. It is insufficient to declare your glory and your goodness and the wonder of your grace and your love and your mercy towards us. Lord, we thank you that in Christ our worship is sanctified. And through Christ you receive our prayers and our songs and weak attempts at preaching and our our feeblest attempts to love you and obey you. You receive all of it. Lord, we just ask that this morning, as we come before you and as we turn ourselves towards your word, that you would show us more of your glory, more of your love, more of your grace, more of your mercy, and fill our hearts with wonder and worship at your goodness towards us. So we ask, Lord, for your blessing now on our time in your word, and I personally ask for your help. You would speak through me and use your word today to reveal yourself and illuminate truth and glorify your name. Amen. Please turn this morning to Exodus chapter 11. I want to welcome you this morning if you're visiting. My name is JD. I serve as pastor here. We've been walking through the book of Exodus um, most Sundays in our time together here on Sunday morning. The story of Exodus is a story of a people who are in slavery, a people who have been oppressed and afflicted for centuries, who cried out to their God, a God who had promised to bless them, a God who had promised to give them an inheritance in the land of Canaan. They cry out to him, and God answers. He works through his servant Moses, and he sends plagues upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt in order to bring about a great deliverance. And two weeks ago, we looked at the first nine of these plagues. Here in Exodus chapter 11 and 12, the story is drawing to a great climax. The first nine plagues came complete with warnings and instructions And they were proof of the truthfulness of God's word, proof of God's incomparable power. There is no one like him. None of the gods of Egypt stood a chance. But this contest of wills between Almighty God, Yahweh, and Pharaoh, this arrogant king, the contest of wills is not going to continue on forever. Following the ninth plague, Pharaoh's time is up. And now God is going to end this. The knockout punch is coming. When Israel exits Egypt, it is going to be because of this phenomenal display of judgment and salvation, wrath and grace, retribution and mercy that come to us in the 10th plague. The 10th plague, which we'll look at today, is the death of the firstborn. And along with this plague come some very important instructions for the people of God there in Egypt. God would give them instructions as to how to celebrate the Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And these instructions are crucial for the children of Israel, not only for their immediate survival there in Egypt, but the Passover and this feast will be important for their future as well. It will shape their worship. It will shape their national identity. And this this ritual of the Passover and the feast that goes with it is meant to engrave a theological truth on their hearts. The necessity of atonement and God's provision of mercy for them. 
So in chapter 11 and going halfway through chapter 12 this morning, I want to very simply bring out two important truths. And the first is this. We find it in chapter 11. Those who resist God's word receive his wrath. Those who resist God's word receive his wrath. We've seen this in the first nine plagues, but it is brought home most powerfully and clearly in the tenth plague. Listen to God's instructions to Moses in verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. These are God's instructions to Moses. As we know, Pharaoh has, to this point, resisted all nine of the plagues, even though temporarily he would ask for relief and say he was sorry and confess his error, very quickly he would revert. His repentance had never been genuine. His heart was unmoved. But God says, one more plague, and then he will let you go. In fact, it's going to be more than just Pharaoh giving them permission. God tells Moses they're going to be driven out of the land of Egypt. The Egyptians will have had enough following this plague. And in preparation for their journey out of Exodus, God tells Moses that they're to ask their neighbors for gold and silver. And this might strike you as an odd request. Going to your neighbors saying, hey, can we have some of your most valuable possessions? We're about to leave and we'd like to take them with us. Um, That might seem strange. You ask, why did God tell the children of Israel to do this, to ask their neighbors? Well, there's several reasons. I'll draw out just a couple. First of all, remember God's promise to Abraham that he was going to bless him. Now, the experience of this generation, the children of Israel in Egypt, has not seemed like very much blessing, has it? Suffering, oppression, cruelty. This is God's affirmation that, yes, I am going to bless you even financially. But secondly, I think there's an aspect of justice in this. Consider that this is remuneration for a people who have been laboring but have been deprived of their wages. God's going to make that right. They're going to be square when they leave Egypt. But I think most importantly, this is intended to be seen as preparation for their journey. God knows that they're going to be going through the wilderness, traveling a great distance, and these people have had no, they have very little um, in their possession. They're slaves. They have no property rights. So God is providing for their journey, and especially providing, not just for, their, for meeting of their daily needs, having some currency to work with, he's providing the very raw materials they will need in order to worship him. We'll get to this point later in the book of Exodus, but these very people are going to be called to build a tabernacle to overlay the various implements with gold. And God is providing for them so that they can rightly worship him. So they're to go and ask their neighbors. In fact, this has already been pointed out. If you remember several chapters back in chapter 3, when Moses spoke with God there on the mountain at the burning bush, what did God say in verse 19? He says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor 
And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. God is very simply telling Moses, listen, the time has come, and now I'm going to do it. Go ask your neighbors and get ready for the exodus. And amazingly, despite the fact, I mean, think about this from the Egyptians' perspective. Despite the fact that Israel's God had wrecked their nation, these nine plagues had devastated their society, their economy at every level. It's amazing to us that these Egyptians would gladly cooperate and give these things to the children of Israel. And the reason for this are twofold. We see it in verse 3. First of all, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. That's why. That's why the neighbors said yes. That's why they said, here's my gold, here's my silver, here is clothing, please take them and go. Just as God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, he's also able to soften the heart of any that he pleases. And he gives the children of Israel favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. But not only that, we know that the Egyptians had come to fear Moses. It says the man Moses was very great in their eyes. Great in the sight of Pharaoh's servants. That would be his court, his officials, and also in the sight of the people, the regular population. They now took Moses seriously. Even if Pharaoh didn't, they did. And so if they know that Moses is instructing these people to ask these things, they say, sure, whatever you say. We've learned our lesson. So these are God's instructions to Moses. Go say this to Pharaoh. Say this to the people. Here's what you need to do. So Moses goes to Pharaoh, and in verses 4 through 8, we find his message. Look in verse 4, so Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. This is the announcement of the final plague to Pharaoh. And this plague was promised, once again, back in Exodus chapter 4. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, the Lord had said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, and this is important, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. There is meaning behind this plague. This is not arbitrary. This is not a knee-jerk reaction by God. This is not spiteful or vindictive. There is meaning here. In calling Israel his firstborn son, what is God doing? God is claiming a special relationship with these people. They belong to him. They occupy a place of special privilege that is near and dear to the heart of God. And they are to serve him. They belong to him. But Pharaoh has been 
get this, oppressing those loved by God and depriving them of their opportunity to fulfill their duty of serving the Lord. So when it comes down to it, it's either going to be God's firstborn or Egypt's firstborn. There's a sense of justice in all this. Egypt has kept God's firstborn son from him. So God will take Egypt's firstborn son. Egypt has stolen the life of God's firstborn through slavery. God will take the life of Egypt's firstborn in death. And this time, unlike many of the other plagues, God will use no mediator. God will use no tools or instruments. Moses does not perform this plague. There's no rod being stretched out here. There's no no ashes being scattered in the air. There's no east wind coming up. God himself is directly acting. Look in verse 4. About midnight, God says, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. God is coming. God is coming. And that spells doom for a people who have resisted his word, rebelled against his commandment. They're due to face judgment. And although grief and agony would wash over Egypt, verse 6 says, a great cry unlike anything before or anything after. Notice that there will be peace and tranquility in the land of Goshen. That's where the Hebrews were. It says, not even a dog will growl. So this great cry of agony and weeping and mourning. Imagine, not a household would have been unaffected. It's difficult when you lose someone who's close to you. Some of you have experienced that. We've experienced that as a church. And a whole church mourns when one person is laid in the ground at a time that seems premature. But imagine if it was every household. This is a devastating grief, a devastating loss that would have touched every household in the land of Egypt. But God says, not my people. There will be peace there. There will be peace. Not even a dog will growl at them. Let alone, the the Egyptians will not take out vengeance. They won't come and bother the children of Israel. They are going to say nothing to them except, here's our gold, here's our silver, please go. And although none of the first nine ended up being effective, prying Pharaoh's fingers off the nation of Israel, this plague will be different. Moses tells Pharaoh, after that, I will go. After that, we are leaving. They won't need his permission In fact, the people of Egypt themselves will come and bow down and they will beg them to leave, according to verse 8. The reality of God's wrath against Pharaoh would mean deliverance for Egypt. And then it says that Moses goes out in hot anger, verse 8. He went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Not just anger, hot anger. Why is that? I believe this is a righteous anger. He's angry because of Pharaoh's wickedness. This man is defying God. He's angry because of Pharaoh's persistent cruelty towards Israel. The people that God loved, the people that Moses loved, the people that Moses identified with. He's angry, I think, because of Pharaoh's blatant disregard for the lives of his own people. I mean, Pharaoh and Moses couldn't be more polar opposite in this case. Moses is there as an advocate for his people. He wants their freedom. He cares deeply for their suffering. And Pharaoh sees his own people as disposable. These are things that someone really should be angry about. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. 
Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Psalm 97.10 says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Psalm 101 verse 3 says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. This is far from the main point this morning, but I have to say it. To be apathetic towards evil. To not care about such things. It brings into question whether someone truly fears God. It brings into question whether someone has adopted God's righteous evaluation of the world. Moses' anger reflects a man who's no longer just caring about himself. No longer crippled by self-awareness and insecurity. No, this man's heart is fixated on God's purposes and passionate for God's glory. And his very emotions here, this hot anger, reveals the depth of his convictions. So I think this is a righteous anger as Moses leaves the scene. This man was once hesitant, wasn't he? Moses at one point had been fearful, but now he is courageous. Once he had been focused on his own weakness, but now he is passionate for God's glory. But really, Moses' anger is not the main problem that Pharaoh has to deal with, is it? Pharaoh must deal with the anger of God. He is facing God's wrath. And what is coming to Pharaoh and his people is no mere slap on the wrist. This will not be merely symbolic of his power, like many of the plagues were. This is not going to be just an inconvenience, like water turning to blood. It's not going to be a blow to the economy, like many of their livestock dying. It's even going to be worse than the physical suffering of boils and the devastation that the locusts brought. The death of the firstborn will be an attack upon the very essence of Egypt's life. You see, the firstborn were their hope for the future. The firstborn were the ones who held the keys. These were the future leaders of homes and cities and businesses and armies. In fact, the next Pharaoh himself would have been the firstborn son of this Pharaoh. And Moses says every household would be affected, from the palace all the way to the poorest. And the message would be clear. God's wrath had come upon them in devastating and irreversible form. You see, the Nile could turn back to fresh water, couldn't it? It did. The frogs and the flies could leave. Livestock can be replenished. Crops can regrow. Economies can be rebuilt. But death, death is permanent loss. And friends, the theological significance of this plague is important. Listen, God's wrath is real, God's wrath is just, and God's wrath is inevitable. This was not just a symbol. Bodies were going to be buried. And it is not uncalled for. God had every right and every reason to pour out his wrath. He had been patient with these people. He had given them warnings, but eventually their time ran out. And there would be no escape. Egypt. You know, there are many today who want to minimize the cost of sin in this life. There's many people who don't like to talk about the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the doctrine of divine retribution, the idea of an eternal hell. There are some who claim that you won't really reap what you sow 
in this life. And even worse, they minimize the cost of rejecting God in eternity. They want to water down the reality of wrath. And sometimes people who do that, they think they're going to make Christianity more palatable to the world. That they can maybe make the gospel less offensive. And that this strategy will actually help bring more people to God. But in distorting the biblical picture of who God is, they lead people blindly towards the edge of a dangerous chasm. It is dishonoring to God to minimize his wrath. And it is reckless and dangerous. Really, when people do that, they fall prey to the oldest lie in the book. Do you remember the first lie ever told in Scripture? What Satan said to Eve in the garden, you will not surely die. What doctrine is he denying right there? The doctrine of judgment, the reality of God's wrath. He says, you will not experience the consequences for your sin. We must not be embarrassed by this truth. Stories like the death of the firstborn in Egypt are hard for us to read. It's difficult, but it's here to show us that God is not just a kindly grandpa in the sky. God is not simply some all-powerful humanitarian. He is God. He is holy. And when his wrath falls, there ought not be any protest or complaint. God's wrath is real and inevitable and just. And this is what happens when you resist and reject the word of God, like Pharaoh did. It leads only and always to destruction. It leads to heartbreak and anguish. It brings death. This is an uncomfortable truth, but we dare not minimize it when it is so explicitly clear on the pages of Scripture. The point of this chapter is that those who resist God's word receive his wrath. God is coming for the firstborn in Egypt. But what does the reality of God's coming judgment mean for Israel? You see, God's coming in judgment into the land actually poses a great danger to them as well. But that brings us to chapter 12. And in the instructions for Passover, we find a second crucial truth. And it's this, that those who believe God's word find shelter in his mercy. Those who receive and believe and trust in what God is saying and respond to that in faith and obedience, they find shelter in his mercy. Those who resist God's word receive wrath. Those who believe God's word find shelter in his mercy. Chapter 12 contains instructions for Israel, instructions about a very specific sacrifice, instructions as to how they can escape this plague. It would be the slaughter of a lamb, the institution of the Passover, the painting of the blood on the doorsteps. Alec Modier asks an intriguing question in his commentary on Exodus. He says, why Passover? Why? Why didn't God just send the 10th plague and then have the Exodus? He writes this, when Yahweh entered Egypt as the absolute Lord and judge, Israel's problem was no longer how to escape Pharaoh, but how to be safe before such a God. He's exactly right. This may seem shocking to us, but there's really not much difference between Egypt and Israel. There's not. 
Although one is the oppressor and one is oppressed, they are both fallen humanity, aren't they? They're both sinful before God. They're both creatures who have a great obligation to their creator, an obligation that they have failed to fulfill. They're unclean and impure, and so there is a great danger for them when the judge of all the earth enters Egypt. Once we gain the vision of God that the plagues present, this God who is sovereign, all-powerful, infinite, holy, and wrathful, the issue really becomes severe, doesn't it? How can we, in our humanness, survive the presence of this God? You see, the plague was, this tenth plague is not just, again, some vindictive act. It is simply God collecting his due. He is calling in the debt of guilty sinners. And Israel is also a bunch of guilty sinners, just like me and just like you. But here's the beautiful truth, that God in his mercy has made a provision for his people. It doesn't have to end in death. It doesn't have to end, rather I should say, in your death. Atonement can be made. If by faith we receive God's word and trust in his provision, we can be spared. Look at the instructions God gives for Passover in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take, according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And upon all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. On the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. There's several elements in these instructions that come out as we read through it. As Moses gives instruction to the people, or rather as God tells him what instruction to give to the people, we see right off the bat that this event, the celebration of Passover, is actually going to reboot their calendar. Did you notice that in verse 2? It's the beginning of months, the first month of the year for you. This night would mark the beginning of something new for Israel. This act of judgment on Egypt 
brought about their freedom, which was to be carefully observed each year. This was their Independence Day. And it marked the beginning of a new era for Israel, so fittingly, it would mark the beginning of their calendar year. God's powerful work on their behalf, this great judgment and their experience of mercy in the midst of it, this would shape their identity as a nation. And so it's to mark their calendar. They're supposed to take a lamb for each household, a lamb that they would later sacrifice. This lamb was to be without blemish. It had to be the best. It was to be a male one year old, and it would actually live with them and become part of the family. Now, some of the people here I know live on the farm. Some of you may have goats or sheep or cows. They probably don't live in your house. At least the way I grew up, animals live outside, people live inside. That's how we always did it. I know some of you guys do a little different, but that's how we always did it. But think about this. Why was the lamb to come into their house? The lamb was to become part of the family to share shelter with them, to share their provision, to become a member of that household. Why? So that it could be a fitting representative of that household. So that it could be sacrificed on their behalf. The idea of sacrifice was not a new idea for God's people. You can go back and read through Genesis and see various times where sacrifice was offered. All the way from Cain and Abel up through the patriarchs, this would happen. So this wasn't something new, but this sacrifice was different in that it was specifically prescribed by God and had a very specific meaning. This is not something that the people of God took initiative for, something that they did to show their gratitude or their love or their honor for God, like a free will offering of sorts. No, this is something that God required, something that God commanded. And it had a very specific meaning, and the meaning is one of representation, It is one of substitution. Now, this idea of a substitutionary sacrifice is something that already existed in Israel's history. Do you remember the story of Abraham where God called Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son Isaac, on the altar? An unthinkable command. But Abraham trusted God. He obeyed. He laid his son on the altar. And as he raised the knife, what happened? The angel cried out, Abraham, Abraham. Do not lay a hand on your son or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear the Lord. And then Abraham sees a ram caught in the thicket, and he takes the ram and he sacrifices it in place of his son, Isaac. What's the symbolism there? God provides for himself the sacrifice that is required. This idea of substitution, a life for a life, was an important feature in their history. And now this truth, Life for a life, a sacrifice in place of a person. It needed to become part of their personal experience. Not just something that their great, 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 you know, great grandfather Abraham and Isaac experienced, but something that now shaped each and every household in that nation. God was imprinting upon his people the necessity of substitution, blood that is shed by a representative so that God's people could escape judgment. And they're to put the blood on the doorposts, according to verse 7. You might ask, why? What's the significance of this? Remember, this isn't the first plague that's fallen upon Egypt, and it's not the first plague that Israel has escaped. There were other plagues that did not affect them. God knew who was who. He didn't need help to figure out, okay, which houses belong to my people and which houses do I need to drop this plague on. So that's not what this is. So why? 
Why are these people called to do this? Well, here's, I think, the important truth. And it's, again, contrasted with what we see with Pharaoh in chapter 11. Those who resist God's word experience wrath, but those who believe God's word, they find shelter in his mercy. This act of painting the doorposts with blood is a personal response to the word of God. It is an act of faith. Saying, God, I believe that what you say is going to happen is going to happen. And I believe that your promise that whoever is under the blood will be spared. I believe that is true. I believe it enough to submit to your instructions and to do the things that you're calling me to do. This is faith in action to paint the blood on the frame of the door. As always, faith is expressed in obedience, isn't it? And this is to signify their faith. The blood could be seen. It was evidence that those in this household believed. They believed God enough to obey. And the people inside were trusting in God's promise. The implication here is that if God does not see the blood on the doorposts, he will not pass over. He will not pass over because the people in that home evidently do not fear him. They do not take his word seriously. They do not fear his wrath. And they are not receiving his provision. They see themselves as being in no need of God's mercy. They've resisted God's word. So they will experience judgment. That's why the blood has to be put on the doorposts. It shows that there has been a death already in this house. and No more death is needed. They're instructed after sacrificing this lamb to share a meal. And they're to carefully make sure there's enough for everybody. Did you notice that? It says, take count, and if, if your family is too small to eat the whole thing, then get together with some neighbors. There needs to be enough for everyone, no more, no less. And this speaks to the sufficiency of the sacrifice. It's enough. One lamb is enough for those people. And they're to eat the whole thing. They're not to have any leftovers. That's why if you can't do it, you know, get some friends to come and help you. Because this is about the sacred nature of the sacrifice. This lamb is holy. You don't just save some for later to eat at some normal meal. No, this is for a special purpose. And you definitely don't throw out any leftovers. You eat everything. And if there's somehow something extra left over, you are to burn it. This is a sacred sacrifice, a sacred meal. And they're to eat it dressed for travel. Their shoes on, their, their belt tied, and their, their robes tucked in, and their staff in their hand. And this too is an act of faith, isn't it? Be ready. Be ready. This isn't to come in, take off your shoes, hang up your coat, and stay a while. No, they are to be ready to leave. This meal is eaten with tension in the room, with a strong sense of expectation that God is going to lead us out. And they're not just having a meal at the end of the day, winding down. No, they're filling up for a journey that is ahead. And then we're told the purpose in verses 12 through 13. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, the night after they eat this meal, the night after they paint the doorposts with blood. He says, I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of 
Why did the blood work? There was going to be someone dead that night in every household. From Pharaoh all the way down to the lowest slave. But the blood on the doorpost showed that the necessary death in that house had already happened. There had been a sufficient sacrifice, a pure sacrifice, a sacred sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice, and it was what God had prescribed, what God had provided, and so God would accept it, and they would be spared. All of this shows us, doesn't it, God's mercy. Israel was in danger of God's judgment. The wages for their sin was death. They could not abide the presence of a holy, righteous God. But God had made a provision for them. And through faith in God's promise, those covered by the blood would be spared. Those who believe God's word find shelter in his mercy. This Passover meal was to kick off actually a seven-day feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We won't take much time here. But in verses 14 through 20, we see instructions uh, for this feast. It was a seven-day feast with the first day and the seventh day being set apart as holy. And there was to be no leaven in the house, no leaven in their meals. Leaven is yeast. And this was to help them remember that when they left Egypt, they didn't have time for their bread to even rise. They hit the ground running. And so they were to remember this, to commemorate this. And there's a warning given in the midst of this uh, feast as well. The warning is this, that those who disregard this feast are to be cut off from the, from the people of God. Verse 19 it says, For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or native of the land. You see, those who would dismiss this meal, who would dismiss this, this feast, this celebration in years to come, this is down the road, God says, listen, if they dismiss this, they're disregarding me. And to disregard God's salvation, to dismiss his gracious provision for them, this is rejection of God himself. You see, the salvation event being remembered here in the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it gave birth to a nation, and those who want no part of it, they indicate that they don't belong. This is a serious thing. It's a serious thing. But there's also so much grace in this because notice there's an opportunity for foreigners to participate as well, for outsiders. We see this in verse 19. It talks about the sojourner. And again, later in this chapter, verses 48 and 49, it speaks about those who are not natives of the land, uh, but people who are strangers, who sojourn among the people of God. You see, there were going to be some people in Egypt who believed in this God, who would actually go out with them, this mixed multitude that took part in the Exodus. Later, there would be others from pagan nations like Rahab and her family who would bind themselves to God and to his covenant. They would come to fear him. They would believe in his word. And the point here is that they are to be fully included in Israel's worship. The salvation that is pictured in the Passover the salvation that is celebrated and remembered in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it is for them also. Again, God's plan all along has been to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham and his descendants. And this too shows us God's mercy. The salvation is open to all who believe. 
Those who belong to God are his by grace, not by birth. It doesn't matter today what your background is. It really doesn't. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your past, your sins, your failures. What matters is whether or not you have received God's mercy, whether or not you have trusted in his provision of a substitutionary sacrifice, whether or not you have received his grace by trusting in his promise. All who believe in God's word can find shelter in his mercy. Moses gives his instructions to the people in verses 21 through 28. He calls all the elders together, and he tells them what they are to do, to dip the hyssop in the blood and paint it on the doorposts. And he tells them in verse 23 that the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. And he tells them in verse 24, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. You keep celebrating Passover every year. You keep doing this feast of unleavened bread every year. Look in verse 26. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. These rituals, these routines were going to play an essential function in the ongoing life of this nation. Think about growing up in Israel. Maybe 100 years, 200 years, 500 years after the Exodus. Maybe you're a young child. Maybe you're seven or eight years old. And one day your dad brings in a lamb from the field. And he says, the lamb's going to live with us for a couple days. You play with the lamb. It sleeps where you sleep. You see it every morning and every night. It's with you 24-7. Maybe you even go a little bit attached to it. And then one day, your dad gathers the family together, and he holds back the neck of the lamb and cuts its throat, sheds all of its blood, drains it fully of its blood. And as a child, you look at your father and you say, Daddy, why are you doing this? And then the father is to give the answer. Son, daughter, this is the Lord's Passover. When we were in Egypt, our deliverance was brought about by God's great act of judgment on our enemies. And his mercy was given to us in that if we sacrificed the lamb and painted the doorposts, we could escape that judgment. And son, this is why we live here and why we're not still slaves in the land of Egypt. And that seven-year-old boy, eight-year-old boy, would grow up to become a father himself and to teach his children, son, daughter, this is who we are. This is where we came from. This is what God has done for us in his love for us, in his mercy for us. The lamb died so that we didn't have to. God was making himself known as a judge and as a savior through this plague in the land of Egypt. And every successive generation needed to know that this is who our God is. And if we trust him, 
we receive his mercy. If we reject his word, it leads to death and judgment. Apparently, the people listening to Moses understood because they respond in the only way anyone should to such a marvelous act of mercy. At the end of verse 27, it says, And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. They worshipped because God was judging their oppressors and bringing them into freedom. They worshipped because God had made provision for them to receive mercy instead of that same judgment. And then they obeyed. Verse 28, the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Carefully, to a T, they did exactly what God had prescribed. As I look around the room this morning, we all have a lot of problems, don't we? Some of us have health problems. Some of you may have financial problems. Some of you have personal problems with other people. Our country has some huge political problems, don't we? You know what our biggest problem is today? Our biggest problem is God. The wrath of God poses a greater threat to you and me than all of our other problems combined. All of us, according to Scripture, are sinners, and therefore we deserve judgment. And this threat is so powerful, this problem is so big, that the only one who can rescue us from God is actually God himself. Apart from Christ, apart from the death of the Lamb of God and the shedding of his blood on the cross, we stand exposed with no shelter from the divine wrath that is going to come. And I must warn you today that to disregard God's provision, to disregard the sacrifice of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, to reject his word, to refuse his gospel, that only brings death. The mourning and the weeping and the wailing of Egypt that night pales in comparison to the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth that will echo through hell in eternity. God is a God of judgment and wrath, but he's also a God of mercy, and he has given us a way of escape. Consider the mercy of God. We see his mercy and his provision. God has given us a lamb, the perfect lamb, the lamb who only had to be sacrificed once and for all at the cross John the Baptist cried out, Behold the Lamb of God, pointing at Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. This Lamb was sent to dwell with us, to become one of us. He took on flesh, became a man. Why? So that he could represent us. So that he could be the substitutionary sacrifice. So that he could die your death and my death in our place to exchange his life for ours. This is God's mercy. God had mercy on you and me, and so he gave us his son. God's mercy is seen in his provision. God's mercy also is to be received by faith. It's received by faith. The only way you can avoid the wrath to come is to embrace Jesus Christ as your representative, to trust in him, to say his sacrifice is enough. The people in Egypt didn't have to paint their doors and 
do something else. No. It's the Passover. God said, if I see the blood, you are safe. That's it. And when God looks at you and me, if he sees someone who is under the blood of Christ, who is trusting in what Christ has done, there is no and. Jesus says it is finished. We receive God's mercy by faith. We trust in his sufficient and perfect sacrifice. And we believe God's promise that his mercy is for us. If you're not under the blood today, believe in Christ. Trust that this warning is true. And paint the doors. Trust in the promise. Come to the cross and say, Jesus, you are the sacrifice for me. And I'm trusting in you. God's mercy is shown in his provision. It's to be received by faith. And finally, God's mercy is to be remembered in worship. It's to be remembered in worship. This great act of deliverance in Israel was to be celebrated regularly. It was to never be forgotten. Christ's work on the cross for us is our Passover. When Jesus sat with his disciples at the Last Supper, you know what time it was? It was Passover. And do you know what they were doing? They were eating this meal. And Jesus took the bread, and he took the cup, and he said, it is the breaking of my body and the shedding of my blood that brings in a new covenant for you, a covenant of forgiveness, mercy, life, salvation. And he says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Today we worship Jesus Christ, who is our Passover lamb. It was that act of judgment at Calvary, an even greater wrath poured out there at the cross than what was poured out in Egypt. It is that act of judgment that has brought about our exodus from darkness, our freedom from slavery to sin. And Jesus says, when you eat, when you drink, remember me. We worship Christ. We remember Christ. Perhaps you've been a believer for decades. This story of Jesus Christ shedding his blood for you so that you can experience God's mercy instead of judgment, that ought to never grow old and stale for us. It is precious. It's everything. The only way any of us can be accepted by God is if we're under the blood of Christ. I can't do enough good things and neither can you. I can never make up for my sins and my failures. Neither can you. I can never cleanse myself of the sin that still remains and clings in my heart. And neither can you. Your only hope and my only hope is that God would look at the blood and give mercy to us. And since he has done so for us, that ought to be the sound that echoes the sound of worship that issues forth from our lips. We sang about it this morning. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I will sing your power to save. We're going to celebrate this forever. So friends, if church is boring to you, if hearing the gospel is boring to you, if taking communion is boring to you, you're not going to like heaven because we're going to worship the lamb, the lamb who was slain for eternity. And for those who really know Christ, it brings us so much joy. It brings us so much hope because I feel guilty sometimes. I see my failures on a regular basis. I know that I don't deserve God's mercy. How do I find comfort? How do I find joy? 
How do I find hope when I see that I deserve God's judgment? I look at the blood. And I know God's promise. We need that, don't we? We need it every day. We need to hear it. We need to sing it. We need to share it. The hard-hearted resistance of Pharaoh led to judgment. But the response of faith and obedience by Israel led to an experience of God's mercy. Those who resist God's word will receive God's wrath. But those who believe God's word find shelter in his mercy. So I ask you, are you under the blood? Are you safe from the wrath of God that is coming? If so, then let's worship our Lamb, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's remember what he has done for us in his death and resurrection. And let's celebrate regularly, joyfully, God's merciful provision for us. Go ahead and bow your heads as we begin to pray. I can't see the hearts of everybody who's here today, by the way. Um, God does. I know it gets old listening to my voice after a while, but I hope today you've heard the voice of God in his word. The things I'm trying to share with you and explain, they're true. They're true whether you believe it or not. It's true. And perhaps God is speaking to you today. Perhaps God is convicting you of your sin and showing you that you are in danger of experiencing his wrath. No amount of attending church can save you from the wrath of God. No amount of good deeds done for your neighbor can save you from the wrath of God. Only the blood of Christ can save you. If God is speaking to you and convicting you of your sin, if he's calling your name today, say yes to him. Confess your sinfulness and your need for salvation. And place your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And God will pour out upon you today his mercy. Lord, if there's any here today who don't know you, pray that you would speak to them right now by your spirit. You would overcome their resistance, their doubts, Overcome their fears and draw them to yourself. Lord, show them the glory of Jesus Christ, the only way of salvation. Lord, if there is no fear of your judgment in their heart, awaken them to this reality. And if there is no personal faith in Jesus Christ, pray that you would change their heart. And save sinners, Lord. Your mercy is something that deserves to be celebrated and honored and rejoiced in. It's something that we need to teach our children and our children's children. Lord, you are a glorious God who is mighty in your wrath, but also plentiful in redemption, full of grace and mercy and love. And God, we thank you for what you have done in making provision for sinners like us to be saved. Lord, as we remember you today, be worshiped and be pleased, be honored as we offer you our gratitude and our love, as imperfect as it may be. We give you glory and thank you, Lord. We thank you. Amen.